If you would turn once again tonight to Ephesians chapter 4. Our subject is growing unto full stature. The subject of Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. It's a major theme in the New Testament. It's a major theme in Christianity. It has to do with growing up and maturing becoming a man spiritually or becoming full-grown spiritually. He said, verse 13, butting in on a sentence that began back in verse 11, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man unto, which is the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the sly of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. God wants us to grow. He wants us to grow up. He saved us as babes. In fact, we're called babes. He said, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word in order that you may grow thereby. As newborn babes, we are brought into wherever God's work is going on, not so we can participate in the latest and neatest thing going on, but that we may grow, that we may grow up and be what he wants us to be. And the Bible outlines what he wants us to be. The Bible tells us how he wants us to be. It's not easy to get there. Most don't. But it's available. It's possible. And he says in verse 13, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Pretty lofty words, pretty heady idea. When you stop and think that God took people like me and you, or I'll take myself, from the way I was and how I grew up in the world, where I came from. To take somebody like me and bring me into his presence and announce that the program I have for you in your life on this earth is such a program that you're going to grow unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. I would say that that's totally impossible. There's no way that can possibly happen. And it isn't in and of ourselves. It's possible only because God said it is. And if God said it is, then it is. You may not be able to do it of your own human strength. It's not designed for us to be able to do it as a natural man. But if you will learn and you will apply and learn more and apply more, the more you learn, the more you apply, the more you begin to grow. You begin to change. You begin being the kind of person that God shows you in the Bible that he wants you to be. Because you see, God inspires us to grow. Now the church today and religion inspires you to get involved. And you know that's true and I know it's true. I'm not against anybody doing that except to say that's not what God called me to do. Getting involved in something may come up while I am growing and I may get involved in something for the good of others and for the betterment of what's already here. But my major goal is not to impress the world or the community. 
Not to be a fancy anybody, a fancy preacher, a book writer, somebody of note. My goal is the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. My mission on this earth, particularly as a ministry, is to make disciples. It's not to grow a church or feed the world. It's to make disciples unto Jesus Christ. Because the fact is, you can be a great preacher. You can be the head of a large religious empire, a book writer, name everywhere. Everybody's heard about you. People travel long distances to hear you and to see what you've done and to look at whatever you have done. You can do all the things that religion tries so hard to be noted for today and never grow. Now, a lot of people may not think that's true, but it's true. You don't grow because you're busy. You grow because of knowledge, because of knowledge of the word. He mentions it twice in verse 13. But the knowledge that he's talking about here is the kind of knowledge that leads you to faith. Now, some people learn a lot of things. They get the little booklets and the pamphlets. There's nothing wrong with those things because you can learn a lot that way. But you get the little outlines and the little workbooks and you read and you go through there and you have to look in your Bible and study and you write a lot of things down and you begin to read about it and learn about it. But it doesn't fit into your life. It doesn't become the way you live. It's something you learned. That's what we would call academic knowledge. It's a good exercise. It's a good thing to do because it's better than doing something else. But the kind of knowledge that we're talking about here is a Greek word which expresses a more thorough participation of the knower with what is known. A knowledge that exercises a real powerful influence on you to live in the light of what you just learned. This is what faith is. Faith is not an academic exercise. Faith is a willingness to do what God said because you hear and you understand what God said. If God said this is the way walking in it, you might say at first, well, you know, I don't know about that. I know what the Bible said. I can read it. I'll quote it for you. I'm just not sure that that's, uh, I'm not convinced. There doesn't seem to be any deep significance to what I just read or heard in church that I would redirect my life that way. I have to know more than just what I heard. Are you with me? Because some people hear a lot. The Bible says they're ever learning, but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. The knowledge of the truth is that knowledge which God shows you. It's a revelation that he gives. The eyes of your heart, remember Ephesians 1, in the same book in chapter 1, he said that, that the eyes of your heart being illumined or enlightened so that you may know what he is saying and what he's talking about. You may have knowledge of something that surpasses questions you might have about or how's this going to be? I don't know how it's going to be. I just know that he said it and he said it clearly to me, therefore I will do it. It's an action that you take on what God has shown you. That's what faith is. Faith is acting like the word is true. Some people just aren't that convinced that that's what they're supposed to do or that that's what it said. They're good people. I'm not talking about bad people. I'm not putting anybody down. I'm just saying a lot of people are not as convinced about living that way as others are. And the reason that some people are so convinced that they should live that way is because the knowledge they have of the word is the knowledge that compels you to live that way. 
I cannot do anything. It's just what your conscience goes by. It's a knowledge that roots itself and seats itself deep in your life. It shows up in your speech. It shows up in your choices. It shows up in such a way that other people note that, how's that song go? He's changing me. Is that the one I tried to teach you and y'all act like you didn't know? Is that it? He's changing me. My blessed Savior, I'm not the same person that I used to be. Sometimes it's slow going, but there's a knowing that someday perfect I will be. But behind all of this is knowledge. If we don't teach, you won't know. And if teaching is not an important part of a religious community, then neither is growth. Growing up and maturing spiritually and becoming Christ-like in your life, if that's not the major part of what is served up as a Christian meal, then what you're going to get is something less than what God wants. We are supposed to be Christians, Christ-like believers on this earth, sharing the gospel, showing the light. Our lives are like cities set on a hill. Our testimony is known. We should be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh us. Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman. And yet people who do very little of that but are very busy like evangelists. And evangelists might come by and note that we take notes while the sermon's going over. You got a Bible, a notebook. What is this, a school? And we study and we teach and we teach way too long. We go over an hour like it's important. We spend all this time studying, and we meet in the week, and we, and we talk about it. And folks who don't do that and haven't been in a spiritual system where you do it, where that's the major thing, they say, you know, you folks know plenty. You know enough. You ought to be busy now. Because that spirit of busyness, that seems to supersede the spirit of knowing, if there is such a thing. Well, I guess it would be a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. I believe that's what the Holy Spirit majors on. Remember Jesus said one time in John 16 and verse 12, he said, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear it now. If I keep telling you more things, deeper things, you won't get it. But when the Holy Spirit comes, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will show you things, reveal things to you that you'll be able to understand better. Whenever he comes, he clears the whole thing up. So you no longer keep the way of God at arm's length with a good heart, but just not sure when the Holy Spirit comes, he sort of breaks that barrier down and things that were not real clear become clear. This is the work that he does. When you don't have that happening, you have Hebrews 5. Paul wrote Hebrews. He said, you know, the time that you all should be teachers yourselves. You should be skillful in the word of righteousness. You should handle it right and be able to share it with others. After all, you are God's ambassadors to this world. You should know who you're representing. And he said, the time that you should be able to do that, you have need that somebody come again and teach you, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and it becomes such as need milk and not meat. And that was a rebuke. Because if a church is not growing, a church is not knowing. But if a church is knowing, then a church is growing because only knowers grow. Knowers are growers. How's that? (laughs) Knowers are growers. Our mission, God put in the church 
apostles, prophets, pastors, and teachers, and evangelists. You get these five ministry gifts in the church. Two of them are prominent. Pastors, teachers, if that's a single one, or pastors, teachers, and evangelists. That's prominent today. The reason it's prominent today is because God wants his word to go out and for people to understand it. It's when you quit teaching people. It's when people withdraw from living on God's terms and get involved in the religious busyness. And you start getting this. You're not growing, but you're busy. There comes that time and there come a famine in the land. Remember that? There come a famine Amos spoke of, a famine in the land, not of bread and water, but of hearing the word of the Lord. Romans 1 speaks about those that receive not the love of the truth. 2 Thessalonians 2, receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. God puts a premium on his word. I know we hear this a lot. I say it all the time. I'll say it till it's over. That God gave us the word. He gave us time. This is what he's doing. This is what he's doing. It's Romans 6, 29, that you may believe. This is the will of God that you might believe. And you cannot believe unless you know. And what you know will never become faith until you're convinced of it. Because if faith is anything in the world, it's an inward convincing that what God says is true. In spite of anything that says it isn't, in your heart it is because... Because, only because, God said it. I don't need any proof of any of this. It's true because God said it. Now, tonight I want to add to this the principle of growth. I want you to turn to John chapter 12. The principle of growth. And I want to begin here. There are just a lot of things to say. You might need to open your Bible and turn to your lot of places tonight in your Bible. Because I don't want you to believe it because I've said it. And I know you don't. Verse 23, Jesus said, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. There are many, many places in the New Testament where the word glory, glorified, or glorious is equated with Jesus. In this case, this man is about to die. He's going to die a difficult death. He's going to die a death that was looked down upon from Deuteronomy 21, defining a Dying on a cross is a bad way to die. You were the lowest, the meanest of sinners. And they died on a cross. And he's about to die that way. And he is about to die a long, lingering death. Painful death. And yet, before this happens, he said, it is time for the Son of Man to be glorified. So let's look at it, verse 24, having said that. Verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me, and where I am there, shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. For Jesus to complete his earthly ministry, it was necessary for him to die. 
I mean, there was a reason that he must die. As bad as it was, we often say if we had been there, we wouldn't have let him beat him like that. We would have stood up for him and fought for him. But it was necessary for our salvation for Jesus to die. It had to be. It says in 1 Peter 3 that Christ has once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust. He has once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive or quickened in the spirit. Jesus died not because he needed to die for himself. He didn't come to this world because he had a need. Jesus came to this world because of us. We were cut off from God by sin. Our sins and our iniquities, as Isaiah said, have separated us from God that he will not hear. We realize in the Old Testament pattern of sacrifices that nothing we did could remove our sins. Every year a man is reminded on the Day of Atonement that he's still a sinner. That you kill any animal you want to and kill all of them you want to and you're still a sinner next year. And every year you're reminded year after year, sacrifice after sacrifice, that you're a sinner. Every day, lots and lots of Levites that had to do lots and lots of this. A man who had sinned brought his sin offering to the gate. When his time came, he came in, confessed his sins. They laid hands on to kill the sacrifice. It was a bloody place. Man was constantly reminded of his sins of just how far short he had fallen from fellowship with God, that he had to spill all of this blood and this system that God designed. It was all about man's sin. And then God himself prepared for us a lamb. You know who the lamb of God is? It's Jesus. God said, thou hast prepared for me a body. And in this body, we have the son of Adam and we have the son of God. He was both. And he was able to offer himself without spot on the behalf of man. So the whole theological ideas of substitution was shown to us. The animal in my place, the bullock in my place on the Day of Atonement. No man was worthy to come before God without a sacrifice. In fact, in Leviticus it says, approach with an approacher. You can approach God only with something between you two that was sinless and innocent of anything. And this was an innocent animal. But as Hebrews writes, uh, the blood of bulls and goats could not cleanse us from our sins. So God made a lamb, his own sacrificial lamb, Jesus Christ. Jesus came. Nobody knew who he was. He lived the way he lived and qualified himself. He was able to offer himself without spot unto God, a ransom for man's sins. That is the price that had to be paid to release man from the wages of sin so that if those who were released would believe, they could come before God without interference. Now, this is what Jesus came to do. I think we all know that. Now, if Jesus does not die, he is like that seed that abides alone. Everybody here knows what a kernel of corn is, a grain of corn. Do we call them kernels or grains? I'll just call it a grain of corn. 
If I took a grain of corn and I laid it right here on this pulpit, it could lay there how many years and never do anything. I'll tell you what you could do. You could take that grain of corn, put it in a special little design cubicle of some sort, a little glass thing so you could walk by and look at it. And you could set that thing in a prominent place, and I guess it could be a thousand years and never change. I've heard people say they found grains, seeds in tombs in Egypt, and they had planted them and they grew. So here's the principle. That which is designed to reproduce itself will never reproduce itself until the forces of death bring it about. In other words, a testament, if I leave my last will and testament, it doesn't go into effect until what? Until I die. Now, when I die, whatever I wrote down to whoever gets what, they now get it. They can't have it until I die. So a testament is not in effect until the testator dies. Are you with me? So as long as he is alive, nothing has changed. He said, if it dies, if it goes into the ground and dies, something happens to it. Now, let me show you something. Put your finger where you are and go to Isaiah 53. In Isaiah 53, we call this the Messianic chapter in the Bible. Charismatics talk about healing. That's about all they get out of this particular chapter, how we're healed. And we are. But there's some deeper things in here about this. For example, what we're talking about now, verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And we still are today, even as religious, we still do it our way. We have all turned our own way. And the Lord hath laid on him what? Now, was he guilty of any of it? No. Jesus was not liable for our sins. He simply was the Old Testament sin bearer who stood in our place, suffered our penalty so that we could be set free. He did that. He laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 8, he was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. Why was he stricken? Because he deserved it? No. Because he was guilty of sin? Not at all. Him who knew no sin, remember, was made to be sin. He didn't know any sin. He didn't do anything wrong, but he took your place for our transgressions. And verse 10, yet it pleased the Lord. I mentioned love on Sunday. Let me just mention it one more time here. I don't know if you understand, if any of us do, how much the Lord loved you and me to get us out of the hole that sin had upon us to send somebody, to send Jesus, who would die the way he did to accomplish what he did so that you and I can have fellowship with God. And I look at us, because he did this while we were yet sinners. While we're sinners, he did this. While we were unloving and, well, what do you say in this book? We esteemed him smitten of God. We just looked at that and said, well, anybody tell everybody he's the son of God, that's what they ought to get. We didn't realize this. We didn't realize it. They didn't either. Devil didn't realize this. But he was taking our place. 
so that we, through his death, could be made alive unto God. The sacrificial system is no longer needed. There's no more of a curtain. There's no barrier between man and God now. Jesus paid that price, made it possible for us to come boldly to the throne of grace. He did that for me and you. Why? Why would he do that? Look at us. At best, at very best, we're only half-hearted. On our best days, we're two-thirds hearted. And during the week, he gets very little time with us. Why would he die for you then? Well, he said, while we were yet sinners, he did what? He loved us. How do you care about somebody that much? How do you care about somebody enough to die for them? He said, greater love hath no man than this, that a man would die for somebody else, to die for his friends. And he said, and you are my friends if you do what I say. And in verse 10 there, he said, he has made his soul an offering for sin. I guess of all the things that we learn as many times as God allows us to meet, how long, years, days, months, we ought to major on the fact that because our names are written in heaven, we ought to rejoice. Not that we've got a house paid for, a car, or a loving wife, or a husband, or you feel good and you're healthy. Those are good things. Those are benefits. Those Psalm 103 things. These are the benefits of your salvation. But there is nothing that will ever happen to you in life. Nothing. Not in this earthly existence that will ever happen more than you being born again by God into his kingdom. Nothing. Nothing. And if you're one of God's people, I'm convinced he'll keep you. I'm convinced. If you're one of God's elect, you're going to stay one of God's elect. No man's going to snatch you away from him. Now, you can learn that's in the Bible and not be one of God's elect and think it's so, and you're not even trying to live right. But I know this. If we're seeking at first the kingdom of God, if we're trying and we want to grow, God is showing us things that deepens in our heart our life with him. This makes it a valuable thing, a, a treasure more than anything else, more than anything else. I want to enjoy the Lord and enjoy his people and enjoy going to a church meeting. I do. I do this in my life. I like this as much as anything I can think of because this is what life is. The Bible says in him we, does it still say Live. Is that still in the Bible? <laughs> Praise the Lord. In him we live and in him we, is move still in there? That means go about. It doesn't mean change houses. That just means to go about. In him we are alive and in him we go about. And in him we have our being. Who we are and who we will be is all Jesus. It's all about him. If we get that in our hearts in this life and that becomes our treasure, and we want to enhance that with more knowledge about that so we can grow even more into it. If we can get grace into grace, we'll go from glory to glory to glory. Here's that word again, glory. Back to John 12 again. Because Jesus said in John 12 and 23, his death, when we understand it, would be a glorious thing because through death, 
by his offering of himself for us, we are released from the wages of sin. We are free. We are set free. And if he dies, he said in verse 24, what will happen? He will bring forth much fruit because he is that little grain of corn. The Bible pictures him in growth as a grain of corn or wheat, a seed. Because this seed was designed to reproduce itself. And if that seed is Jesus, what God wants is many reproductions. Many reproductions. Different kinds of faces and all of that, but the same life. Same life, same life, same life, same life, same life in you. Did you know that the same life in you is the same one that's in me if we're Christian? Did you know that? Or you just know because I said it. Do you really believe it? Amen. You sure? All right. Think about it. If we had the same desire for Christ and the same growth was taking place in all of us, what would we ever argue over? What would we ever split about? Look at what we argue about in the church today. Look at what causes so much consternation in the church today. What color? How many bricks? Where are we going to get the money? I don't know. And we just debate and argue. Those things are so important. And yet, listen to me, you can get all of that as good as you can get it and never grow. Never grow. You can have the best finery in the church and be the most accomplished preacher in the land. But that never means you have grown deeper. We need to spend one night on evidences of full stature because one of them is humility. It's not who am I, but who is he? For he must increase, I must decrease because unless this seed, unless this Hamilton thing, unless this in me dies, I'll resist him the rest of my life. I'll make excuses before God the rest of my life. I'll find substitutes the rest of my life so I don't have to do it his way, but I'll challenge his judgments. Because I'll say, but look what I've done. Lord, look, look, look at what I've done. How many years I've preached? Look what I, look what. And he'll say, I never knew you. We had no relationship because the only way you can grow is to relate. You don't know by osmosis. You don't just come to church as dumb as I was and just sit in church and just suddenly you start growing and become some little junior theologian. No, you have to wrestle with it and you struggle because so much of what God says. And in the tugs of this world, you just can't afford to do that because, oh, oh, oh man, what if this doesn't work and look what will happen to you? Remember those verses in Second Peter 1 where he talks about the divine nature that he has given unto you a way through knowledge that you can partake of the divine nature? the very life of God that will bring forth the characteristics of God, his fruit, his image. And yet, he said, the only way you get there is knowledge. If it's academic knowledge, you get puffed up. Look how much I know. Look how much I know. I am so smart. Look how much I know. It's either that or the more you know, the more you bow your head. Oh, God. Why would you do such a thing for me? Or in Psalm 2, he says, what is man that they are mindful of him? 
And I think of all the places I could have wound up in this life, I wound up in Shelbyville. Can you imagine? In a concrete building with a muddy drive. I don't necessarily like all of that, but I'm glad I'm here because God has met us here. He has me. And he's opened eyes here. And he's performed answers to prayer here. And all of these things has only made us deepen ourselves in him that I shall not be, I shall not be moved. Turn to Romans 6 or I will sing a song. Romans 6, would you turn over there? What a heady book. Romans chapter 6 and verse 5. Talk about the principle of growth here and the seed, and we'll get to the seed again in just a minute. Paul writes it like this. Verse 5, for if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man, that's the life before Christ and the way we lived and all the ruination of that. Our old man is crucified with him that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Here's the deal. Everybody that believes in Christ, sinful man, when Jesus went to the cross and died, while he was alone and everybody forsook him, in the mind of God, everybody who would believe in him died when he died because that's how we got released from our sins, from the foundation of the world. And so when he died, I died. I didn't know this then. I didn't know anything about it then, but I died with him. He didn't leave him in the ground. He raised him up. And when he raised him up, I was raised up also. Is it not true that when you're born again, you have resurrection life in you? Or is he still dead? You know, the Catholics carry these little crosses around all the time, and Jesus is still hanging on it. My daddy had them. Christ is still dying every day on that cross. The Mass is all about dying again, dying again, 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 all day long, every day. All over the world, he's dying again, 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 again. Now, I serve a risen Savior. Remember that song, he's in the world today. I know that he is risen, no matter what they say. And so, verse 7, he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, if you be dead with Christ, we believe that we also shall live with him. Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, reckon or consider yourselves also to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And let not sin reign in your mortal body. Quit that, whatever you're doing, that's sinning. Listen, you don't have to sin. It is not a requirement to be real that you sin because you're real whether you sin or not. You don't have to do something wrong and then say, well, it's all right because nobody's perfect. No, that's not the attitude that comes with resurrection life. You read 1 John 3 verse 9. It's a very difficult verse. His seed remaineth in him and he cannot sin. 
That's an interesting verse and probably over most of our heads. But we're not supposed to be sinners. We're not supposed to sin. Sin has been dealt with. It no longer has the right to have dominion over any of us. We don't have to lie, cheat, steal, fight, or doubt anymore. No more. Because all those things that we did to survive, to be accepted, we no longer need that because we have our life in Jesus. Eternal life is in Christ. When he died, we died. When God raised him from the dead, you got raised with him. His death was for you because of you. His resurrection not only verified who he was and his ministry on this earth, but when he raised him from the dead, it said we're raised with him. And he goes on, verse 13. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under the law, you're under grace. We no longer have excuses for our sinfulness. We no longer have the right to say, well, nobody's perfect. You don't have that right. Because the Bible shows us a way to live that is above that. Am I saying sin is perfection? I wish I could. But the Bible also says if we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus the faithful, knowing that as we grow, we sometimes stumble. We shouldn't, but we do. At least I do. Every now and then, somebody's name will come up, and you have an opinion. Oh, everybody ought to know what it is. You ought to be on the radio with this. Everybody should know what your opinion is. When I started marketing my opinions, I found there was nobody wanting them. But somebody says something about somebody. And you say, well, you know, and you get about, about that far into your little commentary. And this thing on the inside goes, ding, that's your conscience. I didn't think we did that anymore. I didn't think Jesus wants you to do I don't think he did that. Why are you doing that? You see, you can't lie to your conscience. Conscience knows you. I mean, it's like your skin. You can't get away from it. And you say, well, uh. I mean, nobody's perfect. <laughs> nobody's perfect. And the one questioning you doesn't laugh. Oh, that's right. I forgot you're still in the flesh and you're just, you can't help it. Mm -mm. The life you live in this flesh, you live by faith in the Son of God. Now, He has enough to give you to keep you from doing the things that you do. Christians for too many years, I grew up like this. We do whatever we want to do with whoever we want to do it, and we justify it by saying we just can't handle it. A young lady told me one time who was involved with a gospel singing group. She was a member of that group. Going to church, this was an Assembly of God church in, down in the other end of Kentucky. I said, why do you do that? Why would this gospel singing group singing about Jesus with all of these gestures of, oh, when I shall hear the call from heaven's portals, come home, my child. And everybody goes, oh, and these guys are adulterers. 
And she was mixing with them. Tell me something. How can you be so and be so rotten? Is it possible that somebody could be a wolf? They go, if it looks like a sheep, but it snarls, it ain't a sheep. If it looks like a sheep and it growls and has big fangs, it ain't a sheep. This world is full of deceivers. They lie in wait in Ephesians 4. They lie in wait to deceive. The only way we're going to know what's going on in this world, as far as I'm concerned, is for God to open my eyes. Lord, teach me thy way, O Lord. Show me what's clean and pure. Give me a great conviction in my heart to live that way. Let's take Calvary for just a minute. Let's go to Calvary. This seed that's going to die. When Jesus went to Calvary, he's like a seed, a grain of corn. He said he's about to be glorified. Remember that? And yet he is being beaten on. They hammered that man's back. They punched him and pulled his hair and smacked him over the head and Ram, jam those thorns down in his scalp. You know, that's got to hurt. And then mocked him said, oh, prophesy who hit you. <laughs> and they just laughed like they would. Foolish like people are. And he stood there and never opened his mouth. Then he goes to cross. Now, I've been over there. If you ever go, you'll want to go back and spend a little more time in some places. But... You get around the place where Calvary supposedly was. You get this picture of what he had to go through to get to that cross. Needed some help. Simon had to help him get his cross over. I don't think he carried it because I think Jesus would carry his own cross, but he had to have some help. They gave him this stuff to drink to help the pain. Vinegar mixed with myrrh in one verse and then gall in the other. Jesus wouldn't take it. I don't want to decrease the painfulness of this because what I'm dying for is the most significant death that will ever take place in life. The death of our Savior for us. Even able to save while he's hanging there, Father, forgive them. Why? They don't know what they're doing. They don't know who I am. If they knew what was happening here and what was going on here, they'd fall on their faces and scream for mercy. But they don't know that. Their eyes are shut, just like so many in the church. They can't see the value and the worth of God. And Jesus is just a little short prayer, a little Sunday school, and the rest of the week it's everything else. And he went to the cross as the very image and representation to mankind that God wanted men to be. He was the kind of man, the kind of person for women, Jesus in life is revealed by God to us as the kind of human being that he wants us to be. Now, we have reneged and we've opted out because, again, we're convinced through the years of tainted theology, we're convinced we can't do that. We don't be like Jesus to save people. We can't be a savior. Only one could. We're talking now not as a savior, but we're talking about that seed a grain of corn. We're going to put it on the cross. What's inside of this grain? All the divine characteristics that are in Jesus will stay in this seed. 
They'll never find their way in our life. They'll stay in this seed until this seed dies. And when this seed dies and it goes underground, and the ground over top of it, and all the forces of moisture and darkness begin to break down this outer cover of this seed and begins to cause the seed to change itself. How many of you have ever grown a garden? Four of you. All right, let me tell you all the rest of y'all. In my limited knowledge of gardening, I have a kind of enthusiasm that comes with it when stuff comes up like you did it. You get out there and you till the ground and then you do all of the things and then you, you put your little line down through there and you get your bag of corn, one, two, three, and you do that and you get one row done. You come back, so let's do three rows today. You say, oh my, let's do two. No, so you go ahead and you do three rows and you plant some beans and you plant others, whatever you put in your garden. I always wanted to plant turnips, but I won't fix them. Everybody ought to like a turnip, though. But anyway, one day, you look out there, you walk out to your garden, and you see a little green thing sticking up out of the ground. Not only one, but you, you look a little hard, and a whole row of little green things are coming up. And you go, wow. And the next day, you come out, and you look, and they're a little higher. You get a rain, and sunshine comes out. Whoa. It's growing. It makes me glad. I like to see that. Because you see, growth represents life. And where there is growth, there is life. When Jesus went into the ground and died, he didn't abide alone, but from him came forth you and me. We were in him. Now we're beginning to live. Little Potential reproductions of him. To be like, remember the song? To be like what? Jesus. All I ask is to be like him. All through my journey through life, all I ask is to be like him. Paul in Philippians 3 said, I have one desire in my whole life. That's to know him to know the fellowship of his sufferings, to know what he went through for me. May I be willing to suffer whatever on his behalf through this life. To be like Jesus. And you go through Calvary, and Jesus, who is the image of God, the grain of wheat that fell into the ground and died, and when he died, it began to grow. Now, can you find John 12 again? Because... This has to happen to us too. As he died, we have to die. As he died, so we also must die. You all know yourself. You know what the Bible says about yourself. You know the kind of people you are. You know how you were raised. You know how hard you try or don't try. You know how indifferent you are or how zealous you are. You know. We can't hide anything from God who sees our hearts and knows our thoughts. Nothing. So we say it anyway just to bring it to the surface so we can no longer ignore it but deal with it. That's why people don't like sermons or teaching because teaching brings stuff you already know to the surface so you got to deal with it. 
That's why you find something else to do on church night so you don't have to go and deal with it. If you don't deal with it, then you keep your life. What's he say in John chapter 4, 25? He that loveth his life shall lose it. If you like who you are and what people think about you and all your achievements, and I grew up in a home with a famous athlete, and that was something to undergird that. It's what I got to do. <laughs> but if you begin to model your life for yourself, if you begin to live your life for yourself, the whole world to be all that you can be. Join the army. You might live. Aim for the stars or aim for the moon. Go for it. Jesus said, when you come to this time in your life, when he speaks and he wants you to come away from all that, he said, if you love your life, you'll lose it. But if you get your eyes open and you begin to give up the rights to yourself to him, the word hate here is used. If you hate yourself, he says, you shall keep it unto eternal life. Because you see, if you follow me, you'll serve me. If you serve me, you'll follow me. Now, you cannot give up your life unless you know something more than what you know. If you don't see the significance of you dying, then you'll never know what it means to live. And by dying, I mean the more I learn, the more I study, the more I see the way I'm not and I should be. I have a decision to make right there, don't I? I have a decision to make, which is why the Bible speaks of this, a cross. Matthew 10 and verse 38 says that if you're going to follow the Lord, you'll do it with a cross. Because if you don't take a cross, you cannot follow him. If you cannot follow him, how can you be saved? Salvation is not an experience you had at an altar of prayer once. It's a life. Like 1 Peter 1 says, you receive the end of your faith, the salvation of your soul. You live a life because you give up rights to your way. You begin to incorporate his way. He increases, you decrease. What else do you have if you don't? He says in verse 25, you love your life, you lose it. Isn't that what he said? You love your life, you lose it. Matthew 16. Would you turn there? I'd like for you to read that. Matthew 16. I quoted Matthew 10 a while ago. Now look at in the same book, Matthew 16, because he says it twice in a couple of books. He says it throughout the Gospels, or in three of them. Verse 24 through 26. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If, now if is a choice, this is up to you. If any man will come after me, this is the way you do it. Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. Because in the end, what is a man profited if he gains the whole world? The latest, the greatest, the one most admired in the whole world. What if he gets all of that, but in the end, he loses his soul forever? What's he got? 
He made millions of dollars. How many athletes today are making way more than they're worth? They make millions and millions of dollars. What amount do you think the Lord ever gets? At what point is anybody grateful to God for the air they breathe, for the talents they have, and to want to honor God with some of it? Not many. Well, you know, there's a day, there's payday someday. How many of you know that your sin will find you out? One day, you have to stand before God because you use all that on yourself. You built yourself a little empire, and you became covetous and suspicious while you're doing it. And then there's that one day, unexpectedly, you're standing before a holy and a righteous and a fair God. And he looks at you, and nobody can defend you. Nobody can save you now. All of that's done. That's behind you. It's between you and him now on that day. This used to scare the daylights out of me until I got saved. It did because I knew where I was going. And I thought I was cool and I'd laugh about it. But when I was alone, it wasn't nothing cool about dying, especially dying lost. And you think you can't do anything but be honest now. I didn't serve you because I didn't want to. I didn't get involved with church because I didn't want to. I didn't go to teaching or study my Bible or read or pray to do anything spiritual because I really didn't want to. You see, my life was all about me. It's what I wanted to do. It's how I wanted to be viewed and how I wanted people to perceive me. I wanted to be admired and looked up to and, and have a good reputation. You know, people be on my side and when I die at my funeral, I want some gracious soul to say wonderful things about me at my funeral because they always do. And I want everybody to go, oh, he was so wonderful. Jesus said, if you gain all of that, if you get all of that, and God says, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, what in the world was it for? I've never seen a casket lined with money. If they did, it's closed. Have you ever seen anybody die with money all lined around them and in their hands and behind their head like a little pillow? Just everything in their casket was green. Have you ever seen one? You know why I didn't in there? Because you can't take it with you. When that casket rots out, the bugs get everything in it. Dust you came from, dust you go back to. Wow. All because when you were confronted with the way you live, which is unacceptable, and a mandate to live the way he wants you to live, which is acceptable, you didn't want to. You had a me first attitude. And a righteous God gives you a righteous judgment. He's fair. If he says, I'm going to give you this word. These are my instructions for you all here in Shelbyville Christian Assembly. This is my instruction. There it is. Now, all of y'all can read. All of you have a chance. You have plenty of time, at least twice a week, to briefly come to church. Now, here you are. The ground at the foot of this cross where Jesus died is level. Nobody gets more than anybody else. It's flat. We're all equal. All of us, black, white, yellow, green, polka dot, we're all equal. Now, here's the way you do it. Some of you say, well, I can't understand it. God said, I'll give you somebody that will help you understand this. Now, when you hear it, you've got to make a choice. You've got to make decisions. Because you see, unless I die, I can't live. For the principle is death comes out of life. The life of the seed is in the seed. And when the life comes forth, we call it fruit. 
when the Holy Spirit engages you and begins to work on your life as a Christian, where you used to be mouthy, you get quiet. Where you used to be angry, you suppress it. You crucify it. You begin to put to death these old ways that try to haunt you and follow you around. You begin to suppress all of that sinful stuff so that what can take its place? Righteousness, peace, joy, humility, all the fruits of the Spirit. See, this is the evidence that a seed is living inside of you. And the more you yield to that, the more he is glorified in you because the glory in his death was what it meant. We look at it now and say, Jesus, I'm so glad you died. Praise God that he died. Because he died, I live. Now, heaven says, God says, now, you die so he can live. Galatians 2 and verse 20, Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth within me. How is that? For me to live, Paul said, for me to live is Christ. How could he say that? Because he had a cross. And every time the light would shine from heaven about some arid area in your life and you see it, there was a willingness to say, I'm going to crucify that. I'm not going to do that anymore. Think of how many better confessions you all make now than you used to. I made a bad one tonight. My wife just nailed me real bad. And I said, I take it back. I take it all back. She said, well, you should. (laughs) This is hard at home. But anyway, think of how much we've improved. Yet we haven't improved much because we've got a long way to go. If we want to be Christ-like, we have to know what it is he wants. And once we know what he wants, we have to be willing to yield to that. And when you yield to that, you begin literally to die to you and begin to live unto him. And in place of anger comes peace. In place of hatred comes love. You love people that you didn't think you could love. People you thought one day you'd like to hit them right in the mouth. You don't do that. That's not the way we do it. Don't want to do it. Turn the other cheek, I guess. I mean, that's what he said. What's happened to you? He's changing me. My blessed Savior. Anyway, he's doing a work in you, isn't he? God is at work. Is he or not? God is at work in you both to will and do of his good pleasure. Bow your head with me. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks again tonight, again and again and again for your word and for the gracious spirit that you've given us whereby we may grow and learn who Jesus is. I pray that we would really and truly, not just words heard and words spoken, but that we may really and truly as a desire that we would be conformed to his image that Paul wrote about. You have said concerning us that whom you foreknew, you also predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ, which is the measure of the stature of his fullness. We're talking tonight about things, Lord, that are divine, that can only be done from heaven, things in which we're totally incapable of achieving ourselves. 
For every time our flesh tries to do something and get praised for it, you show us in the Bible that within my flesh there is no good thing. And whatever it does is no good. Deliver us from us, O oh Lord. Make us to be what you want us to be. Most gracious God, we ask you to do that tonight in Jesus' name. And all the believers said, amen and amen. God is good.